Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to The Narrators. Today's story comes from Brad Rubendale, executive director of So All May Eat Cafe on East Colfax in Denver. The story was recorded live outside at Bumport Theater. The theme of the show was Inside Out. So I'm not a comedian, unlike everybody else apparently here. Um, So this isn't going to be funny, but um, I have to say, quick trigger warning, I'm going to talk about suicidal ideation and conversion therapy and childhood sexual abuse. So if you leave, I can't see you and I won't feel hurt by that. Um, So anyway, I'm Brad Rubendale and I have the weirdest life of anyone I've ever met um, so far. Which, usually when I say that, people kind of give me the up-down because I look like this. Um, I look like I just left H&M and, like, you know, I go to Panera for lunch and how hard could it really be? But um, I really have had a a strange life. And then I'll start telling people, you know, I've survived conversion therapy. I've been excommunicated twice. I'm looking for that third one, but so far no one will kick me out. Um, And I was raised in a cult. And when I get to the cult, most people will be like, okay, I'm starting to see it. You're weird. It's fine. Um, But I'm not going to talk about the cult. If they ever invite me back, I might tell the cult story. But this tonight, I want to tell the story about um, the summer where my life got turned inside out. uh, And it nearly killed me. So the summer is 2012. I was 31. Yes, that means I'm 40. Um, so I was 31 years old and it was, um, I was a 31 year old virgin had never had sex before, never even made out with anyone. And I was a Starbucks barista. And that was the summer between when the church that I was working at as a youth pastor fired me before they excommunicated me later. So that tells you a couple of things right there. So that summer, um, I was on my way to work one morning at four in the morning, like Starbucks baristas do. And, um, I opened grinder as one does. And there was, I'm, I met a cute boy. There's, um, only two types of people really that are on line at, on grinder at 4am and that's meth heads and Starbucks baristas. Um, so no offense to meth heads, but we, um, I met this Starbucks barista and his name was not Brock. Um, but that's what I'm going to call him in this story. Denver is a very small city. Um, so Brock and I, we, um, had a wonderful summer of love. He, we cuddled, we watched movies. He taught me how to make out. I had never done that before. And then one summer, it's actually nine years ago yesterday. Um, I left his, I left his house and I broke up with him via text. And, uh, for the first time in my life, I, uh, made the plan to end my life. Um, and so I'm going to back up and tell you how we got to this weird place. 
the first time, the very first time I ever said, uh, came out to myself, I was 17 years old. And um, I looked in the mirror and I couldn't even say the words, I'm gay. I just looked in the mirror and I said, you're like Stanley, which is my gay cousin. And so um, that was as close as I could get to saying I was gay. And a few months later, I came out to my brother and Technically, I didn't come out to him. He caught me watching porn, and so that was really awkward. Um, but So he knew, and we were two good boys in a cult, so we decided to figure out how to fix Brad because he struggles with same-sex attractions. And so um, we did some research, and we found this place called Exodus International. I can't see you, but if you've heard of Exodus International, don't clap because it's fucked up. Um, Exodus International claimed to rescue gays from their sinful bondage of gay lifestyle and set them free in liberation to Jesus. And I thought I had found my salvation. So I dove in with both feet. I found every book I could find. I went to conferences. I started conversion therapy. Uh, For 13 years, I did conversion therapy. And so I want to pause and just explain conversion therapy because most people hear that and they think, you know, electroshock therapy and getting hit with Bibles until you turn straight or something. And maybe that happens, but it wasn't my story. What, what happened to me felt worse, actually, because if something comes at me outside, I can externalize that. My version of conversion therapy taught me to hate myself in a way so specific that it almost took my life. So conversion therapy, the narrative. You start as boys. We don't know how lesbians work. No one does. Um, <laughs> As boys, you are start off life bonded to your mama. And then you, at around age two, disconnect from mom and connect with a father because it's a nuclear family. Maybe a father figure because we'll allow for that. Um, And then you go from there. You start to form your masculine identity. And then you go from there and you have little boys that are your friends and your buddies. And you have clubs and girls have cooties. And then you get to puberty and the flood of hormones hits you. And you, your brain all of a sudden sexualizes what you perceive you don't have. So women, you know, tits and ass. And so suddenly you have a fully formed heterosexual male. um, And that's the way Jesus originated heterosexuality. So in the conversion therapy narrative, and this is all serious. Like this is how they think of it. In In the conversion therapy narrative, what happens is one of those points of of growth stops, gets interrupted by trauma. And so um, then whenever you, you know, you don't disconnect from mom, you don't attach to a same-sex father figure, you don't have close male friends. And so when puberty hits, you sexualize men um, because it's what you see as other. And I... (laughs) It sounds so fucked up, but at the time it made sense because I had some really upsettingly convenient traumas that happened in my life at all of those points. Um, When I was three, my cousin started molesting me from three until 15, and that interrupted a lot of shit. Um, But I told my dad about it, and he didn't believe me, so that ended that relationship. I wasn't close to dad. Mom saw me as her teddy bear, so she would use me for her comfort, and I was overly attached to mom. Um, I had another trauma when I was six years old that disconnected me from other boys. So all of my friends were girls. I mean, I was literally set up. The overbearing mother, the absent father, the no guy friends. And so um, I was gay. And well, I s- struggled with same-sex attractions. So in this conversion therapy narrative, the other thing is, is they say, it's not that it's bad that you have same-sex attractions, but you can't call yourself gay because that's an identity. You have these attractions, and the goal is to go back to those traumas, heal them, and then your true heterosexual nature will emerge. And that's what I went through. So for 13 years, I was doing therapy to try to understand the traumas that had happened to me so that my true heterosexual nature could emerge. Um, 
So now we're going to go back to the spring of 2012 while I was still a youth pastor. And I had been doing this work for a long time and had worked through a lot of my traumas and it healed a lot, actually. And um, the one troubling thing is, is I didn't turn straight. And <laughs> shocker, it doesn't work. And so I was coming up on a really big crisis because I didn't know what I was going to do. If I'm not turning straight, how is this going to work? And the universe decided to hand me the best gift that I've ever received, which is the church that I was working at fired me. And the funny thing is they didn't fire me for being gay. They fired me because uh, my roommate at the time, who was a seminary student with me, we went through seminary together. He went to the priest and he told him about all of my sins, but it was like swearing and being crass and like drinking too much. And I was like, well, yeah, duh. Um, and they fired me for that, which I was like, you all, I'm out as a same-sex attracted individual and you're going to fire me for swearing? Go off, queen. Um, so I got fired and I left. I moved out of that house, started couch surfing and got a job at Starbucks. And now we're back to not Brock. So that summer, it was incredible because I was hanging out with Brock. And for the first time in my life, before he touched me, he asked my permission. He asked if I wanted it. And no one had ever thought to ask if I wanted to be touched because my cousin would use me when he wanted to feel some fucked up things. Um, my mom would co comfort herself with me, but no one had ever asked my consent to be touched. And so for the first time in my life, this person's asking me, we'd cuddle and he'd ask if I wanted to be the big spoon or the little spoon. And I'd never thought about it. No one had ever asked me these things. One of my traumas meant that I had some like weird stuff around like saliva. And so I didn't feel comfortable kissing. I'd never kissed anyone. I'm 31 years old. I'd never kissed a single human. And he would close mouth kiss me until I wanted to go deeper. And then after we would stop, he'd wipe my mouth off so that I didn't have to deal with saliva. And to this day, it's one of the kindest things any human's ever done to me. I found out later he's a sex worker, and that explains a lot of the beautiful generosity that he brought to that relationship. Um, shout out to sex workers. Like, they're amazing. <laughs> they hold so many people's shit and crap, and they do it with kindness and grace. I love it. Um, so the problem was is that I wasn't sure what was going to happen to me, but I sure as fuck wasn't turning straight. And it wasn't like filling my masculine voids, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't know what's happening, but I wanted to kiss him more and I wanted to fuck him and I wanted to like go deeper with this. And every time I'd leave his house, I was overcome with the shame of my messed up sexuality that was going to, and this is what conversion therapy told me, cannibalize someone else's sexuality to fulfill my own masculine voids. And I was terrified of hurting this beautiful human. And so I would leave and experience massive depression. And so one Saturday night um, in September, I left and I made the decision that I was going to kill myself to save him from me because I was afraid that he was going to get hurt by my toxic sexuality. So I go to work the next morning on Sunday at 4 a.m. and I'm making lattes for rich white ladies in the suburbs and I'm planning my own suicide. Now, at this point, I had been a youth pastor, so I had done several suicide interventions, and I knew the difference between a suicide attempt and a suicide, and I didn't want an attempt. And I also decided to make it look like an accident because I couldn't have anyone else feeling like they could follow in my footsteps, certainly not the kids that I had influenced. But I knew I needed to leave the world. And so I was making this plan, and I had my lunch break at 8 a.m., like you do at Starbucks, and I called my brother, the one who had caught me, <laughs> Um, we were good friends. And I did one of the cruelest things that I've ever done to this day. And I told him that I wasn't going to be here next week. He lived in Missouri, several states away. And I said, I wasn't going to be here next week. And I specifically told him because I knew he didn't have the tools to save my life. 
most of my friends here in Denver knew how to like call the police and get you into a safety wellness check or whatever, but I didn't want to stay alive. I just needed one person to hear that I wasn't going to be here anymore. And hopefully they cared that that was going to happen. And I'm so glad I did that, even though it was so cruel to him, because I go back and I'm making another latte and all of a sudden all of the darkness in my mind just parts. And this phrase, Brad, you are not toxic, comes down and lands in my soul and it takes root and it goes into my limbs and it goes into my past and into my future. And all of a sudden I realize I'm going to stay alive because I'm not toxic and I'm going to fuck it up and I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to fuck it up again. And I'm going to keep trying, but I have the freedom to do that because I am not toxic. And I knew I was going to stay alive. And so, and I was probably going to lose my entire life, which happened. So the next day I go to the priest and I tell him I'm going to start dating boys. And he excommunicated me on the spot. And I've never been back in that church. The next day I told my therapist, the conversion therapist, I was going to be dating boys. And it ended that relationship, thankfully. And I lost everything. I lost my support network. I lost my friendships. I lost everything. I had one person who stayed in touch with me, and that was my other brother, not the one I told, that actually talked to me through that whole process. And I lost my entire life, but it wasn't my physical body anymore. And in that moment, I gained my soul, which is kind of awkward because I'm mostly an atheist now, so I'm not sure how that works, but um, it's still true. And that was the summer that my life turned inside out, and I survived it. And I want to do a quick epilogue because last weekend um, I was with my brothers. We call it mancation every Labor Day. And so we meet somewhere in the country. We're in Kansas City. And my brother, my younger brother, in the last nine years has gotten a degree in psychology and a master's in counseling. And he graduated in May. And now he's seeing clients to help them reconcile their beliefs and their actions to make sure that no one arrives where I did. And he told me last weekend that he did that because of me. And I was like... Cool shit happens. <laughs> so anyway, I'm not a comedian, but I'm usually funnier than this, at least. Um, so uh, stay alive, kids, because like, you can create a life that matters. My husband is over here. I have a whole gaggle of gays that are over there supporting me tonight. Some of my staff from Same Cafe is back there. So anyway, come to Same Cafe and eat, too. I went there when I was homeless. It's a long story. That's another one. But thank you all. <laughs> That's Brad Rubendale. Keep it going. The Narrators is produced by me, Ron Doyle, and Aaron Rollman. Help from Karen Wachtel, Jesse Witten, Scott Carney, and Sidney Crane. Our music is by Gabby Gutierrez-Reed and Kevin Matthews. Special thanks to our sponsors, Bumport Theatre Company, Illegal Pete's, Wanna Brands, and Great Divide Brewing Company. We'll be back next week with a new episode. If you're in Denver, please join us for one of our live shows, which take place on the third Wednesday of every month. For more information about the live show or past episodes of this podcast, you can click on the link in our show notes or visit our website, thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>